Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, May 1st, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together, show number 275. We hope you all have had a great day. It is open mic night. Uh, we originally had Keith Carson uh, scheduled to be our guest, and uh, we've had some uh, some encounters, some conflicts, so we're not going to be able to have Keith with us tonight. So hopefully we can get him booked um, for a future show. But we uh, welcome you to the show. We hope uh, that you enjoyed our uh, pre-programmed uh, show last week, recapping the uh, severe weather that's hit the Carolinas over the past couple of weeks. So uh, we hope uh, that you are well and uh, you enjoyed your uh, Easter break. And tonight is, like I said, open mic night. We're going to be discussing a couple of things, and one of those are already tropical-related. I can't believe we're talking about the tropics, and it's not even hurricane season yet, but we'll talk about that in just a second. We'll also welcome back panelist Shay Gibson, but before we do that, we are a live broadcast, so if you are watching tonight, we encourage you to interact with us, and you can do that one of many different ways. You can comment on our Facebook Live or our Periscope uh, stream, and uh, all you got to do is ask your question, and we will pop those up and help answer them. Or if you're listening on the podcast version, and you can do that through Stitcher or TuneIn or um, any of your um, um, podcast apps, uh, you can uh, tweet us a question, and uh, we will look forward to those and answer them as we get them. So again, uh, this is show number 275. So let's uh, bring in with uh, a guy that you've not seen in a while, Mr. Shea Gibson. He did join us a couple of uh, minutes during the uh, severe weather coverage a couple of weeks ago. But, Shay, welcome back to the show. I know you've been extremely busy with family, and uh, I know your uh, wife has been off doing some uh, new training, and so you had to uh, take care of the kids on Wednesday nights. But uh, we're glad to have you back here as we uh, enter, a um, our, our, honestly, the tropical season. We're off to already a uh, start in the tropics, so I'm going to toss it to you and kind of let you uh, – uh, give us a little overview of what's going on off the coast of Florida as the National Hurricane Center has highlighted an area of interest. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Scotty. Um, good to be back on. Yeah, I took a little hiatus there. I had to help wife cover some uh, time on Wednesday night. And uh, th that was really good. She got her certification for yoga instructing. So that was a really good thing for us. Uh, good thing for her, too. And so, yeah, I'm back every Wednesday night, at least for the what I posted earlier, the foreseeable future. Uh, but yeah, tropics, you know, we're, we're about a month away. So June the 1st through November 30th is the tropical season or the hurricane season for the Atlantic Basin. So when we, we start to watch areas right about now because we, we do tend to get some activity that fires up in some of the warmer waters near the Bahamas, uh, sometimes near the Gulf. It just depends on some sea surface temperatures allowing for that to happen and some of the, the right aggregate type of um, atmospheric conditions. So let me go ahead and share a screen. And let me know when you can see. All right. So right now, the NHC, as of 1.52 p.m., uh, circled this area right here over the Bahamas. And it is uh, it's not moving very much. It's not very well organized, but it's a, a very low chance near zero percent of developing. It really is more of an upper trough feature at this point. There were some signs of maybe a lower trough developing yesterday, but there's a lot of upper shear along the northern side of it. It is expected to head off towards the northwest towards Florida. Um, now, we don't think it's going to develop here. We think it'll be a rainmaker for the Florida area. And then as we look at the five-day graphical outlook, you can see it hooks out over the Atlantic. Now, if this puts it over the Gulf Stream, it may have a chance to, uh, you know, increase some rainfall amounts. So we're looking at more or less rainfall uh, event for the southeast region. But as we get into Saturday, Sunday, we have a cold front approaching and some upper-level winds are going to be steering it 
off to the Northeast pretty quickly by Saturday night. So <clears throat> it doesn't have very much time to get its act together, especially going over land first and out over the ocean. We got the sea surface temperatures, uh, pretty warm out there. We're in the 80s for the most part down the Bahamas. Along the coastal shelf here, we're still in the low 70s, low to mid 70s. So that's not very conducive for development. That doesn't discount subtropical activity from occurring. But, uh, you know, we do see some winds right here. The Abaco Elbow Key down the Bahamas showing in the in the 30 mile per hour ranges, maybe gusting into the upper 30s at times this afternoon. So that easterly push also pushing over into Florida right now. We're getting a little bit of an easterly gradient built along that east flow out of that system. And so we're getting up into the 20s. Here's the uh, NASA uh, visible satellite. And you can kind of see it's really disorganized. There really isn't much to it. It looked a lot more impressive yesterday and last night on, on visible satellite and on radar for that matter. But really it's um, on the COD, we get a little bit of a closer look. We see the blob kind of blowing up. There again, a lot of disorganization, but you can see some of the uh, convective cells moving ashore along the Florida coast, which is keeping those winds built up. So we're, we're kind of seeing, a, a you know, some of that tropical moisture feed into the coast, but by any means, this is not a tropical system as of yet. The uh, NAM 12 shows a general idea of what's going to occur. This is not exact, but you see it gets swept away really quickly by Saturday night into Sunday morning, um, and it just holds off the coast. So the, the key here is going to be, is it going to have enough warm water to, to, to sort of get it, its act together to get into even a low pressure system, a full-on low pressure system off the coast? I don't, I don't think we'll get a solid surface low. I think it'll be more of a uh, a discombobulated feature for the most part. But you can see the WC rainfall amounts increasing the rainfall. What's already fallen now, add another couple of inches to Florida and then mainly off the coast. So looks like Saturday could be wet in the morning and then clearing out for the southeast region. That That's pretty much going to do it for this system. We will continue to monitor it, but I think for the most part, we're not looking at anything of major development here. It just really is a sign to wake up and say, hey, you know, hurricane season starts June the 1st and then start having a plan in place for what's to come for this season. I think we're going for a slightly below average from the, uh, the latest uh, NOAA readings. And then we'll, we'll get another one here pretty soon in May, the next couple of weeks. So come out with a, a larger um, sort of outlook for the hurricane season. We are in El Nino, so that factors in as well. And back to you, Scotty. Thank you for that, Shay. Appreciate that. And uh, as Shay is talking about, we are approaching a tropical storm or hurricane season. Uh, next week is Hurricane Awareness uh, Week. And accompanying that is the National Hurricane Center. Uh, we'll be uh, conducting a hurricane awareness event. And uh, these will be taking a place across the uh, East Coast areas on Monday. They will be up in Rhode Island. On Tuesday, um, they will be in Middletown, Pennsylvania. Wednesday, Roanoke, Virginia. Thursday, next Thursday, will be at Charlotte, North Carolina. And they will wrap up the week next Friday in Brunswick, Georgia. And again, so the National Hurricane uh, Center will be uh, bringing out some of their aircraft. There will also be some forecasters and meteorologists uh, from the National Hurricane Center, as well as the local forecast offices. In fact, the uh, tour stop number four on May the 9th will be in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that is open to the public. You are invited to come out to the Charlotte Douglas International Airport from 2 to 5 p.m., and you can take a tour of these uh, aircraft that fly into the hurricanes. You can talk to the storm crews who uh, collect all the data and send it back to the National Hurricane Center so we get better uh, forecast products uh, when these hurricanes um, are threatening shore. So again, um, you can come out. It is a free, uh, free event for uh, those of you who want to come out. So if you're a weather 
uh, whether uh, enthusiasts or you're just interested about aviation or if you've always just wanted to see what a hurricane hunter looks like, uh, you're invited to come out to the Charlotte Douglas Airport next week, next Thursday from 2 to 5 p.m. Uh, you can find more information at weather.gov slash GSP slash H-A-T. And that just stands for Hurricane Awareness Tours. So, um, again, um, you'll have to look through that. Uh, you do uh, have to go through uh, some uh, security screening, so you'll want to make sure that you have your ID uh, and undergo um, just some of the general stuff from the TSA. But again, the uh, National Hurricane Center uh, next week is Hurricane Preparedness Week, and they uh, start that off with the Hurricane Awareness Tour. And you can go to this event in Charlotte, North Carolina, again on May the 9th, 2019. That's next Thursday. Uh, though it's open to the public from 2 to 5 p.m., and you can tour the uh, WC 130G as well as the NOAA WP-3 Orion aircraft. And so that's a pretty unique opportunity. In fact, Carolina Weather Group will be there next week. Uh, myself, along with Evan Fisher, uh, Jared Smith, and Chris Jackson will be there. We'll be conducting uh, several interviews that we'll be able to play back throughout the hurricane season. And uh, we're looking forward to that event. So if you're out there and you see us, come on, say hello to us. We'd love to meet you. And uh, we'll uh, be uh, passing out or tweeting out Facebook posting uh, more information throughout the next week to remind you of this event. And to do that, James, I know you have uh, been able to uh, go on this uh, hurricane awareness tour before. And um, so maybe yep. you can tell, tell the folks a little bit what they can expect. And I think you have a, a package that if we're going to uh, dig way have... back into the archive when I had hair up here and not down here on my face, but we want to try to entice you to come on out and check this out. I had the opportunity in 2009 to uh, meet up with them on Long Island. Um, I was doing some student reporting at the time, and uh, we're going to roll some of that video here momentarily. So again, this is from 2009. I was then Hurricane uh, Center Director Bill Reed. Uh, it was before Hurricane Sandy. You're going to hear us mention the fact that Long Island hasn't had a hurricane in a, in a few while, years, and that's obviously no longer the case. But most importantly, I want to give you an idea of what it is that you, the kids, family, friends, whoever it may be with coming out to check this out are going to be able to see and do. Um, I think this was the Orion aircraft, if, if memory serves me correct. And the one big takeaway I had was just the uh, technology aboard this plane is some really... Um, uh, hardy technology that I think they've been using for a long time. And they actually will talk to you about this, but they can't use jet engines when they fly into these storms. So it's actually a propeller plane. And without giving much more away, let's roll this package from 2009. Some light rain here on Long Island, nothing for the crew of the Hurricane Hunter aircraft behind me. We're used to flying through some of our most severe hurricanes to get the National Weather Service the latest information. They stopped here at Republic Airport as a part of their week-long severe weather tour. NOAA's Lockheed WP-3D Orion turboprop aircraft slices through a hurricane as nerves inside rattle with every wake of turbulence. Because as a pilot, I was trained to fly to stay away from bad weather, and now that's my mission, is to fly into bad weather. Now, the plane itself is just a 1976 P-3. It's not structurally enhanced at all. Um, there's a lot of scientific gear in the back that makes it special, but up here, it's pretty much uh, an airliner. This, this, this is a basic drop sound, which is the instrument we actually launch out of the aircraft. It's, it's expendable. Uh, once it's gone, it's gone. It's about $750. What we do, we, we launch out of the aircraft and, and don't recover it, but as it's, as it's launched out through the hurricane, it sends back data. That includes temperature, humidity, barometric pressure, wind speed, wind direction. That transmits it back to the aircraft like a robot. 
we receive it here and then, and then transmit that data back to the National Hurricane Center, which helps better predict the hurricane. Hurricane Katrina, the red line was the original track of the hurricane predicted. Mm -hmm. uh, once we once we flew through it and did with, with including this instrument and other instruments, the green line became the new track and the black line was the was the actual track of the hurricane. Long Island hasn't seen a major hurricane in over two decades, but the threat still remains. So the problem you have here is just like you mentioned, you can go a whole generation without uh, a substantial impact from a hurricane, so it becomes a story rather than something someone lived. And I think the challenge there is convincing people that this threat is real for them, because even though it's a rare event, it will happen again. So we come up here to remind people, don't let your guard down. It's been a while since uh, Long Island's got hit by one. Who knows what this season will bring. NOAA's going to announce the official forecast on May 21st. Um, and uh, we'll see what the season shapes up to be. At Republic Airport on Long Island, I'm James Briarton. I report for CNN. 1976. There you had it. I said that the plane was uh, a little hardy in age. In 1976, guys. So I think that was the biggest thing that I remember from when I visited this plane in 2009. That doesn't mean that it's antiquated. They got a lot of really cool technology on board that you'll be able to get to see. But again, if you're a flight enthusiast, they have to use this particular aircraft because some of the, the newer jet engines, as I understand it, wouldn't be able to handle the turbulence, which is which is really interesting, Scotty. It is. I'm excited to go out there. And I forgot to mention there are several schools in the Carolinas in the Charlotte area um, that got invitations, invitation only uh, tours for these air crafts. So uh, maybe uh, maybe your student uh, who uh, attends one of the local schools, uh, maybe they got this invitation. So really looking forward to that. Uh, something that um, that we know all too well here in the Carolinas. And, and they've picked a lot of these areas like the Roanoke and the Charlotte area, as well as the uh, Pennsylvania location, um, inland locations, because we see a lot of effects from hurricanes too. Not necessarily the wind or the storm surge, uh, but the inland flood threat um, and, and the tornado threat is also big here as uh, you get off the coast. So uh, looking forward to that. We hope that you'll be out there and uh, participate in this event. I know um, they had one of these in Raleigh a couple of years ago and a couple thousand folks attended and I uh, was able to uh, speak last week with some of the uh, the meteorologists at uh, GSP, Greenville Spartanburg, and they were telling me they were planning for uh, a big turnout as well. So we hope that you'll be able to make it out there and uh, tour these events. There's also going to be different um, little stations set up. I know uh, WCNC, Fox 46. Um, I think Kokoros, Melissa is going to be there with uh, a setup there. So um, there will also be these uh, stations that you and, and your kids can go to and learn more about hurricanes and how to be prepared for them. So um, very interesting stuff. And, and speaking of that, and James, I'm going to bring you back in um, because uh, there's been some stuff going on in the weather community. And one of our talking points tonight is uh, the upgrade to 5G. Uh, you may have heard about this. Um, the United States is looking to upgrade uh, your cell phone service from 4G to 5G. And in that process is, uh, is slowly but surely starting to take place. And there's some fear that uh, this could interfere with some of the weather satellite data. And so, James, I know this is kind of up your alley. You know a lot about technology and stuff. So uh, you heard about this a couple of months ago. You were telling us, you know, behind yeah. the scenes that, uh, that they're starting to buy up some uh, some different bands and stuff like that. So I'll kind of let you talk about the logistics of that, and then maybe uh, we can all have a discussion how that could affect our weather forecasting abilities. 
Yes, everyone, get comfortable. Let me take you way back to the day where uh, the government realized uh, that they needed more wireless frequencies because we've now reached a point where every one of us has at least one, if not two of these things, and they all need frequencies to operate on. And there are only so many frequencies out there in the world. If you think back to the days where your baby monitor used to overlap with your wireless phone, uh, we're running into an issue like that where, where things are ending up on top of each other because there's only so much room in the atmosphere uh, for these uh, wireless frequencies or as it's referred to, spectrum. Uh, everyone thinks that's an internet company and it is, but they get that from the actual term that we used to talk about the uh, wireless frequencies in the atmosphere. Uh, the wireless industry right now is very excited to move everyone to 5G. It doesn't really exist yet, but apparently it's on the cusp of coming out, which will bring some really fast internet speeds to our wireless phones. You remember when we switched from 3G to 4G, that was a big deal, and this is going to be another big deal as well, too. But they need more wireless frequencies in order to make this work. Long story short, some other folks who also have wireless frequencies, such as television stations in recent years have sold back some of the space they were allocated in the atmosphere to transmit. Matter of fact, here in the Charlotte market, Fox 46, which had space on 46 and 55, sold off 55. It's still available on your TV, but it's actually coming off of 46. It's, it's a whole long story, but what they did was they sold off half the farm, made some cash, but then the FCC took that and then they can allocate it to uh, wireless companies, even police or fire radios as well, too. The concern now, though, is another aspect. And when we start looking down at the Earth from satellites, we also have to consider frequencies, not only for those satellites to talk back to planet Earth, but they're also visually scanning the atmosphere for frequencies. And one of the areas, and uh, credit to uh, you, Scotty, for actually detecting this article that was out this week, and we were putting the pieces together, talks about how water vapor is seen in the atmosphere on a very particular frequency. It actually radiates, if you will, and that's how the satellite picks it up. Well, the problem is that, that frequency is very close to the frequencies they intend to use for 5G. So if you have all these towers across the country emanating on Channel 5, I'm making that up, but let's just say it's Channel 5, and then you've got the uh, satellite in space looking down on the Earth, scanning for Channel 5, thinking it's going to see water vapor, but instead it's going to potentially see all of these different cellular towers so they're trying to figure out how to uh untangle this if you will and actually it recently came up when uh the nasa administrator uh was testifying in front of congress so they're obviously a government agency and everyone's been going up to dc to do their pitches for long-term planning and and budgeting and the like and this actual conversation came up uh, let's take a listen to this and concerns that you have about last month's auctions a, gr a great question. So NASA works with the NTIA, which is the government like, is it, uh, uh, kind, kind of, of uh, have they gotten arbiter of spectrum issues. And uh, NTIA ultimately represents us to represents NASA to the rest of the government um, when it comes to you know spectrum auctions and that kind of thing. Uh, I will tell you that the 24 gigahertz spectrum that is being auctioned uh, could have an impact on NASA's missions when we talk about sensing the earth um, in the 23 gigahertz range. Uh, what that enables us to do is characterize water vapor in the atmosphere. It enables us to characterize energy in the atmosphere. And, and why is that important? Because that's how we're able to make predictions. I say we, NASA is not responsible for the operational capabilities, but we are responsible for developing the satellites for NOAA that operates them operationally. 
Um, and that, that, that part of the electromagnetic spectrum is necessary to make predictions as to um, where a hurricane is going to make landfall. So that has a big impact. If you can't make that prediction accurately, um, then you end up not evacuating the right people and or you evacuate uh, people that don't need to evacuate, which is, which is a problem. Um, and, and all those have impact. When it comes to Hurricane Sandy, for example, the United States of America believed it was going to be heading out to sea. The European model got it right. Well, it wasn't the European model. It was the European data. They had better data than we had uh, from their systems. Um, we we want to make sure we get this right because it, exactly. it's, it's necessary to life and property. It's also important to recognize um, when, when it comes to weather forecasting in general. Again, you'd have to ask NOAA, but my consultations with them, we're talking about going back to 1978 levels of data. In other words, uh, instead of a seven-day weather forecast, a two- or a three-day weather forecast. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that they sold our spectrum. That didn't happen. But there is a risk that de depending on the power and the position of the cell towers in the 5G network, um, it could bleed over into our spectrum. And that's the risk. And the assessments that NASA has done in conjunction with NOAA uh, have determined that, that there is a very high probability that we are going to lose a lot of data. A lot of, lot of challenges there, Mr. Administrator. I want to thank you for your, uh, your hard work and your insight. So certainly, I think still a lot that they have to get figured out there. We were actually talking about it behind the scenes here while that was playing, uh, that we don't know all the answers yet. And I think there's one or two cities that are test sites for 5G, but it's, it's something, guys, that's not really widespread just yet. Uh, it, it, a lot of questions. I don't think a lot of answers at this point, but uh, something uh, to uh, keep an eye out for. And I'm sure all the folks watching at home or on mobile right now uh, are probably thinking, oh, man, I can't wait to 5G. Uh, I can't imagine all the things we'll be able to do with it, but uh, some considerations here, Scotty. Yeah, definitely so. I know uh, I had an AT&T U-verse out a couple, about a month ago now. I had to get my modem replaced, and he was telling me that AT&T was buying up a lot of towers and stuff here in western North Carolina. So he told me my service would be better. I'm going to hold him to it so. Your cellular service will be better, but who knows? You'll yeah. be able to see water vapor in the atmosphere. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. I don't know which one I want. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of seeing things, uh, radar coverage, that has also been a big story over uh, the past couple of weeks. If you've uh, been with us during our severe weather coverage, it seems like every tornado we covered uh, throughout the month of April here in the Carolinas was in some sort of a radar hole coverage. And and so uh, the Weather Service has been working on this. In fact, a couple of months ago, we told you about a study that was being conducted for uh, the GSP region as well as Columbia and Raleigh. And now Charleston has been added into that region as well. They are conducting studies on the beam height and how that could better um, help us out during severe weather. Our panelist, Jared Smith, has recorded this segment and he will tell us what's going on as uh, these uh, findings are starting to come to um, to our come to us, and we're finally able to see um, how this is going to be helping us during severe weather coverage. Thanks, guys. So, if you've been watching our coverage here in the Carolina Weather Group, severe weather in the last few weeks, you've undoubtedly heard us refer to the hole in the radar coverage over Central North Carolina. This has been a pain for us for years. It's been a pain point for a very long time, um, and. Ultimately, what this means is that you know there's no radar in central North Carolina, so we have to rely on surrounding radars. And this makes it harder for us to track storms because we can't see as well at the base of the cloud, nor can we see as sharp of an image because of the way the radar beam widens as it gets away from the radar site. 
Um, and so, so that's a little graphic here that kind of illustrates what we're up against. You know, pretend like the radar antenna is Greenville, and the storm is over Charlotte. And as you can see, we have a we, we're looking very high up into it, and so we're not seeing very well at the ground. Um, we're not getting a new radar there anytime soon unfortunately, but there are ways to get around this. And one of those ways is to lower the elevation angle of the radars that are surrounding the area so we can see what's happening close to the ground while being a little further out. Um, the good news on that is that environmental studies have been completed at Greenville, Spartanburg, Raleigh, and Columbia, and it looks like uh, implementation of those changes uh, will be coming uh, fairly soon. So we're going to lower the elevation angle at Greenville, Spartanburg to 0.2 degrees. Uh, that's going to help take in a lot more of Charlotte. That's going to help take in a lot more of, um, you know, the uh, the Midlands even, you know, as a backup to Columbia's radar, which is very helpful, or as a second opinion for Columbia's radar, which is very helpful. Um, <clears throat> uh, Raleigh's radar is going to move also to 0 0.2 degrees, and this is going to be very helpful for our friends in Greensboro. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place as well. They're kind of on the edge of this radar hole. Not the worst coverage, not the best coverage, so we're going to improve their coverage there by going to 0 0.2 degrees. Uh, Columbia, the KCAE radar, is going to go down to 0 0.4 degrees. Now, this is not going as low. We're going to run into some beam blockage issues with the air traffic control tower. Um, and ground clutter was found to be an issue at lower elevations, but this is still going to make some improvements to... to um, Overall radar coverage in South Carolina. It'll bring a, uh, give Charlotte another little bit of a vantage point there. Uh, it'll help um, lower the elevation in Charleston a little bit. When the Charleston radar goes down, we have to rely on Columbia. And sometimes that's not great because the beam today at Columbia goes to 10,000 feet there. So this will be a nice improvement. Um, it'll get us better than nothing uh, in the Charleston area. And speaking of Charleston, we'll also see changes there. We just learned this week that the National Weather Service is slated to move to a 0.3 degree angle. Um, they are completing the environmental assessment there. Uh, it's currently in a public comment phase, which is great. <clears throat> and um, once that comment phase closes at the end of May, then we should hear... We're gonna we're gonna hear a little bit more about the plans to move this to 0 0.3 degrees. Um, you know, a software build package will be coming out in August, and uh, the Radar Operations Center has indicated that GSP Raleigh and uh, Columbia are gonna move to the new uh, radar angles at that time. But the government shutdown did throw a wrench in some things, and so we'll see if those plans hold. But for now, um, looking forward to uh, getting these changes. And quite frankly, I just wish they turn them on tomorrow, Scotty. All right, thank you for that, Jared. We appreciate that. Jared's not with us tonight, but um, he did file that report. So uh, something that we are hoping uh, we will be able to get into uh, action here in the next um, few months, as you can see, um, those are the uh, radar sites across the Carolinas. And as you can see, uh, the Greensboro over towards Winston-Salem and the Charlotte area, really just not a lot of coverage at all. We do have the terminal Doppler there at Charlotte, but uh, there is like a water tower there that prevents um, that beam uh, from being casted up into Lincoln, Catawba, and Alexander County. In fact, the uh, tornado that went through Alexander County uh, last weekend, or I guess it was last weekend, last week, uh, there's been so many, I can't remember, but that was also that, that beam block, it's kind of, um, sheltered us from uh, seeing that on radar. So hopefully uh, we'll get that process started soon and looking forward to having some of the uh, data moved into our uh, radar uh, platform. So with that, talking about severe weather, there was also a new article out from the Washington Post, a good buddy of ours, James Spann, 
recently was talking about um, folks not being able to find themselves on a map. And it's something, uh, Shay, I'm going to bring in you and, and Evan as well, because we all cover severe weather for our areas. And it's something that I run into a lot. A lot of people ask, well, what's the forecast for um, Hickory or Morganton? Or, you know, when we say this particular area, so people look for specific cities. And, and Shay, I imagine it's kind of like that with you during hurricane coverage. And so uh, it, it's become a topic now, at least in our weather community, of folks not being able to find their stuff on a map. And I was wondering for you, Shay, is, is it kind of like the same way down in Charleston? Are a lot of people uh, kind of hard to pick out where they live at on a map when these watches and warnings are issued? Yeah, I think we there is some disconnect there as far as where folks think they are in relation to what warning is going on at the time where it's been issued. So a lot of times at the coastline, when the weather service issues a tornado warning for Charleston County, it may be a quadrant of the county or a piece of the polygon is touching into Charleston County and affecting others. And a lot of times it's inland, right? And, and sometimes we get these warnings at the coastline. So folks maybe lose a little bit of, um, maybe they're not as um, aware of maybe where the warning may be. So the general idea is if it's in the county, you should seek shelter no matter what. You don't know where it could be, uh, but then finding yourself on a map according to that warning and getting that information into your phone. Um, you know, smartphones are, are one great way to have that, and you can enable any warnings and, and advisories that weather service issues, flood warnings, tornado warnings, severe storm warnings, all of these things, and that'll kind of give you an exact idea. Now, if you have your um, location turned on, that'll help things out. You can sort of see where you are in relation to that map, but not everybody's carrying around radar where they have their own GPS coordinates with that to see where they are in the warning polygon. So that there is a little bit of that. I think most of the action happens inland as far as the severe weather away from the coastline. And I think a lot of folks are sort of comfortable. They get a little bit comfortable knowing that right along the immediate coastline, they're probably a little bit safer uh, than, than inland, except for maybe during the sea breeze storms in the afternoons in the summertime. So yeah, a little bit here, maybe not as much as where James Spann is and others, but um, yeah, I could, I could agree with you on that, Scotty. Speaking of James Spann, here's a little clip of uh, what he was talking about a couple of weeks ago during his severe weather coverage and how he is helping his folks there in central Alabama. During severe weather, what do we use? Maps all night. You know, we just can't show you much severe weather at night, so we wind up using maps. And we have learned that a large percentage of people in our state, in many states, cannot find their house on a map. If I were to give you a blank map with no labels, no highways, just county lines and state lines, could you draw a dot within 50 miles of your house? And we've seen some studies that show about 85% of the population cannot do that. Yeah, and in fact, I was watching uh, some of that coverage when James was talking about that. So again, uh, something that we as meteorologists need to continue to work on and um, something we also want you folks to um, help us uh, work on to how we can better communicate um, when uh, severe weather striking. And um, Evan, you and I had this conversation. We were covering severe weather a couple weeks ago, and it's really good as uh, it affects my community, your community, as we try to pinpoint locations that, that folks would know, maybe a Walmart or a shopping mall or a particular restaurant or something like that. I think that helps people better understand where they are on a map as well. It does, absolutely. If you ask someone where Buncombe County was, um, and I've, obviously I'm younger, so I have a lot of friends that are in high school and college, um, and most of my friends probably couldn't point out uh, the, the county they live in on a map, which is really sad um, and surprising to me how poor uh, the younger generation is 
with that type of maps. But as, as Shay was saying, um, we do live in the age of technology. Um, so that kind of stuff helps. But the, those little local identifiers, people do, um, they know exactly where those are. Uh, you're exactly right, Scotty, because everyone knows, uh, if you've lived in an area for a while, everyone knows where the local Walmart is or where the local, um, you know, the best, you know, the fast food restaurant and stuff like that. Um, so th those are the key pieces. And, and SPAN does a great job of that in Alabama. Um, and we try to do our best here as well. Very true. And Shay, I think you have some ads as well. Oh, just it was a separate topic. I didn't want to oh, get yeah, off topic of this one. Someone else brought a, a, a viewer question. Um, if we're ready for that right now, we have sure, um, yeah, yeah. a friend of mine named um, Han Natty Dread. He's a he's an accomplished scientist down in the, in the Caribbean area, and he um, we keep in touch. He, he's a he's always asking questions about uh, the tropics. So he asked, "Have you guys read that hurricane speeds in 2017 may have been inaccurate?" Um, now you know, there's a, there's a link out there. There's some information out there that you know speeds are always being tweaked. You know, Hurricane Andrew wasn't upgraded until 10 years later. Michael wasn't for months later before we got a category five rating from that. And so you kind of wonder what's going on with the instrumentation. Do we have the tools necessary right now that we're capturing the pure essence of a storm and it's at its at its category and absolute strength? And the answer to that is that we have so many things to analyze. And that article pointed out uh, uh, microwave imagery, right? So we have advanced scatterometers that satellites are beaming down to gain wind speeds, right? They're 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 basing it off of uh, winds going across the waters at the surface. We have white capping that data is being transmitted as well. So we can't really rely on one set of data. You know, the hurricane hunters are dropping sons down to the storm. They're getting readings, vertical soundings all the way down, even below the, the water at subsurface ranges to get water temperatures. So there's a lot of data that's coming into these things. And so reanalysis on any one particular year or any one particular system can always be fine tuned. And NOAA does have a team that does that. They go back and they look over all the important data, all the information coming in, and they say, okay, did we get this storm right on its category? And it's not so much the category that we really want to focus on, but the damage that the storm does. The category gives it a certain rating, um, enough damage done, then the storm gets retired, the name gets retired from the World Meteorological Organization. But, um, you know, the main thing here is, is saying, what instrumentation are we using? You know, the, the company I work for, Weatherflow, we have a mesonet, coastal mesonet, that captures wind speeds at the optimal heights. You know, we have that, we have other things, we have the um, the, the mesonet that the NOAA Weather Service uses. We have ASOS uh, weather stations. We have all kinds of mesonets from private companies working in that as well. The university is helping us out. Um, you know, with Michael, we had one station that got blown 50 yards away, weighed 5,000 pounds on a on a on a basically a footed mobile unit. Um, so I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. The, the reanalysis, the, the initial category that you may see is just a reflection of the, the sheer power of strength of the storm at the time being what we're capturing from the data all coming in at one time. And so the NHC, they really try to get that narrowed down to the best uh, possible category or rating possible. Um, so I hope that helps answer your question. There's a lot going into that. And so we really rely on reanalysis later on to determine some of these storms and what their final, uh, their final outcomes are and what their final strengths were. And I think you said it, Shay, and it, it, I'll just reiterate, it happened last week during our off week when they made Hurricane Michael a Category 5 months after the fact. So you're right. This data is not always set in stone, it seems like. And um, yesterday I was able to attend a webinar, and uh, Dr. Ken Graham from the National Hurricane Center, he's the director there. That is one thing that the Hurricane Center, uh, as, long, as well as the uh, National Weather Service offices, they're kind of prone to tropical systems, is looking to put 
uh, more instrumentation out. They were talking about where Michael hit, there wasn't a lot of wind uh, instrumentation there. And, and what was there wasn't able to survive the, the wind gusts that, that moved through that area. So I think there's a, a big effort um, from all uh, entities in the, in the weather community is to get more um, points of data out there so that we can help uh, get these uh, storms more accurately forecasted and uh, we don't have to wait months later to determine if a hurricane was a category one or two three four or five so um, right. that that is some some information that uh, that that hopefully as we go through time we'll be able to get more data and we always say we always want more data so um that's hopefully yeah. something we can get done. And there's just there's just a lot of holes out there like, like mexico doesn't have radar the bahamas doesn't have radar you know the, the puerto rico was down for some time after you know irma and and you know it's it's like we just have so many holes in in the field right there you know like even using buoy data on the seas we think oh no, the buoy's out there it'll capture it well you get into 30 and 40, 50 foot swell heights, nothing is going up and down in between the waves and it's not getting a solid reading. It's getting, it's getting jerked around out there and it's getting biased, very biased information. So there's a lot of things we have to consider, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're increasing data nonstop. I mean, not just the weather flow. I mean, the, the NHC, NOAA, I mean, all these private weather companies, everybody is really, they're starting to increase more data points. So it's, it should be getting better and better over time. It's much better than it was 20 years ago. That much I can tell you. Definitely. So, and speaking of data, uh, one of our last topics we're going to talk about tonight is um, some of the climate stuff is coming in now that it's May 1st. And we learned uh, late this afternoon that Asheville surpassed their um, uh, monthly uh, rainfall um, average um, or the record, I'm sorry, record. So uh, the rainfall record in Asheville over the month of April was broke. And um, Evan, I think you looked into a little bit of the data to uh, talk about what the record was and, and what the new record is now. Yeah, Scotty. So uh, some people might be surprised that there was a new record last month because it didn't seem like we had all that many rainy days, um, especially across Western North Carolina. But a lot of that precipitation came on April 19th. Uh, if y'all remember, uh, the Asheville Airport actually recorded 5.29 inches of rain that day, um, which is a daily record um, and probably one of the highest rainfall totals um, ever recorded. I'd say that's probably in the top five for sure. Um, so the, this, uh, the new record was 8.97 inches. That replaced the previous record from 1998 of 8.7 inches. Um, that's actually, so you know everyone remembers that last year was very rainy, very wet, um, especially May through December. Um, but we're currently 6.5 inches above where we were at this time last year um, and nine inches above average overall. Uh, so it's, we, we just keep continuing that rainy streak um, and the one day where we had 5.3 inches of rain um, really kind of replaced all of the, the dry days that we had and just threw us right back into the ringer of all the rain and stuff. Um, and it, once again, we're expecting more rain this weekend, um, hopefully dry through middle of next week after the weekend's rain. But uh, it just keeps coming, Scotty. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and just to know that that was not even trop trop related to the tropics this month. Uh, it was just rain coming in from from different systems. So um, that is something that we'll monitor as we go throughout the uh, the coming months where we especially get into the wetter months of, of late spring into, um, into the summertime. So uh, that is all of our topics tonight. I do want to end on a, uh, on a somber note. As uh, many of you know, uh, if you live here in the Carolinas, there was a, uh, a shooting yesterday at UNC Charlotte. Uh, many of you folks uh, who are connected to the weather community know that the um, UNC Charlotte does have a meteor, uh, meteorology program. 
Um, thankfully, um, no one in that program uh, was harmed, but unfortunately, uh, there were two lives that were lost. Um, Raleigh Howell from uh, the Buncombe County area, as well as um, Ellis Pallier, who was from Union County. Uh, those two uh, individuals lost their lives, and we had um, four other folks who were injured, uh, but thankfully it looks like uh, their injuries uh, will not be life-threatening. So I, I know one's already been released from the hospital, and hopefully the other three um, that you can see up there in our picture at the top um, will be released soon. So we're going to leave you with the uh, candlelight vigil that was held tonight at the uh, campus of UNC Charlotte. And all of us here at the Carolina Weather Group extend our thoughts and prayers to the families who lost, lo lost loved ones, uh, to the families who um, had family members injured, and just for the uh, Charlotte community and the UNCC community, uh, we, we're thinking about you and praying for you, and uh, we hope that uh, better days are, are soon to come.